Welcome back to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. We took a secret walk last week. Just kidding. We didn't record a podcast. And this week we recorded a podcast and then it got eaten by a thunderstorm. And so now we are recording it again because we are a river to our people. And like we were totally done with the podcast. We said bye. It and was then- saving. And then it said buy back. And then and the electricity went out. And Tell everybody who you are. Oh, this is Yolando. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sad that we lost the podcast. But and I said to him, he should be so happy that he gets to have two conversations with me in one day. Yay. Like, like a double blessing. Double blessing. And he is not buying it. So that hurts my little feelings. No, I love talking with you, but um, I'm just disappointed that. Uh, whatever. Don't patronize we, me. We lost a good podcast and we whatever. Lose a good podcast. We'll have to make an even better one. So. Absolutely. Okay. Tell I'm people psyched. what is astonishing you this week. Well, I am astonished um, because or by. Why am I astonished? I'm so disoriented. Okay. I'll tell you what you are astonished about. <laughs> okay, yes, I, I'm sorry. I'm just so upset that we lost that podcast. Okay, so I'm going to get it together. Well, we have been recording um, uh, worship videos for our uh, church family. Uh, we upload them to YouTube every week. And a couple of weeks in, our mutual friend, John Edwards, called me and asked me a question that rocked my world. He asked me if I wanted to go through this entire season of producing videos during quarantine and not give an invitation to discipleship. And I was embarrassed that I really didn't think to do that. And the good thing about it And, you know, of course, God uses um, people and situations for your good. That week, I gave an invitation in our worship uh, video, um, and it just released something within me that is powerful, exciting, and I just haven't felt it in a long time, and that is just a just a reawakening of the, the power of the gospel message. Not that I've, I've, I've not been aware of the power of the gospel message, but often my, in my preaching, I've pointed to Jesus, I've preached Jesus, I've preached the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. I preach it, but often I do not give an invitation, inviting people to believe, to cross the line of faith. And so giving that invitation in the video just made me alive to that once again. And I'm now so aware of how I have conformed to our uh, culture, the culture of our denomination that often just thinks 
that kind of thing is for people in other groups and not for us. Uh, but it, this so connects, as we were saying in the last podcast that we lost, <laughs> I'm over it, I'm over it. Um, I was saying before that this just so connects with my own story, my own being called to follow Jesus. When I was 16, I would listen to sermons, going to my after-school job at a grocery store, would listen to Charles Stanley and Tony Evans, and I was not a believer. And one day I was listening to the preaching of the gospel on the radio, and the grace of God flooded my soul, and I became a believer there in my car. And so now in retrospect, you know, I'm, I'm just so very grateful to be where I am now in my discipleship. And it started because someone invested time, money, uh, the sharing of the gospel in a radio program that was the catalyst for my coming to faith in Jesus. And now I get to do the same thing on YouTube. And so it, it's, it's an exciting time for me um, in that regard. And uh, I'm just so very grateful and humbled uh, to be able to um, once again, just give that invitation with great joy and um, imagination, thinking about who might be hearing that and believing for the first time. Yeah. And I, I mean, we were talking before, um, cause this is just, I mean, look, every, every branch of the body of Christ has flaws and um, we serve a particular denomination called the PCUSA. And there are just lots of really um, beautiful and good um, um, gifts that that, part of the body of Christ has to offer the world. Um, but there are also just areas of our common culture that are, are weak and that are in need of reforming. And, you know, one thing that's really beautiful about our tradition is this emphasis. People talk about being the connectional church and this idea that each individual congregation is, is connected to all the others. And there's a mutuality and a sharing and a real sense that, you know, um, we belong to one another and that, you know, what happens in one part of the connectional church, you know, affects all of the other parts and there's some real, but, but the shadow side of that sometimes is this idea that if I'm not already connected to you, then, then you don't belong. And that is, you know, true, I think in some of our collegial networks, I mean, people think, you know, basically if I, if I needed to know you, I'd already know you. <laughs> like I, and, and that um, can lead to a really insider outsider dynamic, um, which is just interesting. I have, have another mutual friend of ours and who is also a Presbyterian pastor. And we talk sometimes about how within the denominational network, you, you can feel like an outsider as a pastor if your father or grandfather weren't also pastors. And so, I mean, it's just, there, there's this rich sense of connectionalism, but the sad, shadow side of that is it really does um, feel like if you're not already connected, you don't belong. And I think that gets translated in our local congregations. Um, people feel like, yeah, I'm here. I'm already in relationship with Jesus. So why are you doing an invitation to faith? Um, because you're preaching to us and we already believe. And, you know, our denomination just, um, and I don't want to speak, you know, long history, but recently um, has just not had an emphasis on evangelism. It just hasn't. Um, and 
the, the denomination I think has, has had really good prophetic um, energy around other fruits of the gospel of, you know, justice and, I mean, and, and has really pushed back rightfully so against certain Christian traditions that live as though once a person prays the sinner's prayer, that's all that matters. And you know, that all that matters in living out Christian faith is getting people to pray um, and make a spiritual commitment to Jesus. And then everything else is just, you know, inconsequential. And I think our denomination has pushed back against that in really good ways, but sometimes throws the baby out with the bathwater that just because evangelism isn't the end of our faith doesn't mean that it isn't part of our faith and should be the beginning of our faith. And I think sometimes there's just a sense that, you know, we'll just talk to our own and take care of our own and resource our own and grow, you know, our own children and our own grandchildren. And it, it's a really, um, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's a malformation and it shuts us off from some of the growth that I think that God is calling us to. And I mean, like you, I did not grow up in a family um, that taught me to be a Christian. I didn't grow up as a child being taken to church every, every Sunday. And um, I'm grateful that, you know, it was a Methodist church that really welcomed me in and discipled me and nurtured me. And, and, you know, it's, I also remember, you know, because my journey looked so different than my peers, because I was the only one whose parents weren't making them go to church or encouraging them. In fact, my parents would, um, would, would use the church as a, as a stick, right? Like if you don't get your grades up, you can't go to youth group. And, you know, I really remember feeling lots of, um, angst about whether I was really a Christian. And so I appreciate just having an awareness that there are people in the room who, um, are, are not in the place where you think they are and, and being able to really clearly, um, articulate a path, um, for someone to make a commitment and to really, um, not make assumptions and, and not leave people sitting there in the pews or listening to the podcast of the sermon, feeling like their noses are pressed up against the glass, like they'd like to belong, but they're not sure if they do. And so, um, you know, I think that's great. And I also, um, you know, a lot of times make that same assumption and, and don't, explicitly articulate, Hey, if you're listening and you are feeling, you know, a tugging on your heart, or you are wondering if you belong, or you're wondering, um, how to follow Jesus, or if you can follow Jesus, here's, here's what, here's what you can do. Here's the next step. And that's really, um, that's really important because I sure am grateful. Someone made that way clear for me. And I want to be able to do that for others. And, um, and I'm grateful that we have relationships with our colleagues within the Presbyterian church, but we have relationships with people in other parts of the body of Christ who really ask different questions and have different wisdom and challenge us in ways that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters won't. And that's just all, all for the good, all for the good. Even if sometimes, it's uncomfortable when someone says something to you and you're like, Oh, how did I not, <laughs> like, how was I not doing this? And, yeah. and 
what does that oversight reveal about the assumptions that I'm carrying with me into the pulpit and into my ministry and into my life as a pastor? And it's, um, you know, it's humbling for sure. And if I don't have evangelism as a priority, then right. how can I expect the church to it make is, it a yeah, priority? Members, right. And, and I, yeah. And, and if it's not a priority for the church, then our thinking will be reduced to, well, we've got to get more people so our church won't die. Right. It, it will be this very self-centered, selfish, uh, quote-unquote evangelism. It will be about us and not about the Lord's kingdom. It'll, about, it'll be seeing people as resources for the church yes. instead of the church as resource for people and you know as um our friends bill and bob told us um during the transformation journey that we were a part of um because i i have my own complicated history with i mean the word evangelism is just a weighted term and it has a lot of connotations of oppression and control and exploitation um and so in a lot of ways and, you know, xenophobia and, you know, Islamophobia and all, you know, so there's some, there's some health to our discomfort with that word, but the answer isn't to throw it away. The answer is to recover it and um, reinterpret it because, you know, as our friends, Bill and Bob said to us that, you know, the primary mission of the church is to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And for me, initially, that was a really provocative statement because I really understood church as being like a, a manifestation and living out of the ministry of Jesus. So, you know, um, a Matthew 25 kind of, you know, visiting the pr prisoners and making releasing captives and announcing good news to the poor and feeding and sheltering and all, all of those things, which are absolutely a manifestation of the realm of the kingdom of God. Um, but what um, Bob said to me, which really made me angry um, as the truth often will piss you off before it sets you free is, you know, there are a lot of ins that, that is, a, that is ministry. That is Jesus ministry. It does glorify the Lord. Um, but there are a lot of other institutions on earth that do those things and do them better than the local church. And there's only one institution on the face of the earth, which has as its mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And that is the church. And if we don't do it, nobody else will. So the real question is, do you think it matters if people have an opportunity to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ? And, and if you don't think that matters, then I think you really need to wrestle with are you called to be a pastor? Because being in relationship with Jesus is, is the heartbeat and the breath and the life of my life. And for me not to want to share that with others would either be selfish or just the highest order of spiritual pride. Like this makes a difference for me, but it wouldn't for you or for pre-deciding for people that there's no point in sharing this with you because you wouldn't, couldn't possibly, you know, just there's kind, there's a lot of ugliness um, behind our hesitancy to share the gospel, either because Jesus isn't at the center of our lives. Jesus is the means to a greater end for us, or we think that we have a spiritual capability that other people don't, and we don't want to waste our time with them. Either way, it's crap. And if, and if I have been welcomed by grace 
and given a new life and given mercy and given a freedom and a joy and a hope that keeps me, you know, keeps me alive. Um, and I don't want to share that with others. I mean, that's horrible. Not to mention with, it's just simple obedience to, to share the gifts that we've been given by Jesus. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really interesting to pay attention to why. And I'll say one thing before I stop talking for now. <laughs> um, I think we have bought into the lie that we can either be tolerant or be evangelists. And that is just a lie because I think that tolerance is a core virtue of the gospel. And I think we are meant to look at those around us with just deep humility and reverence for the mystery of what God is doing in the world and remembering that Jesus himself said, I have other sheep that are not of this flock. And so it's not about walking over into somebody else's life and standing in judgment of what they're doing and saying, I know better than you come think like me, talk like me, live like me. It is about saying this thing that is the precious center of my life, I can give it away. And the more I give it away, the more I have to give away. And you, you belong in this place. If you want to come into this place, you are welcome. And we will receive you as a brother, as a sister, as a friend, as a teacher, um, like to believe in the welcoming table. That to me is what evangelism is about. And not just sort of um, assuming that anybody who's not around the table doesn't matter anyway. Like that, basically, if we don't ever care about inviting people in, then it's basically us saying they're not worthy to sit at the table with us. And that's just a damn lie, a damned well, lie. Well, what I've come to realize <laughs> is that so much of my ministry has been about showing people this great banquet of God, this great table filled with wonderful food of grace and mercy and love and hope and joy and peace, this great banquet. And said, look, look at this food. Isn't it wonderful? All right. See you next week. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and not saying, hey, come take a bite. I mean, it, I, I, that, that's essentially what I've been doing for years and years. And now I see, okay, yes. Ask people, invite people to take a bite, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? So and I, I, yeah, and I also think for pastors, there's an element of really um, not falling into the trap of thinking that you are like the Jesus broker. I mean, to say to people, pray this prayer and there is, um, there is a realm of growth and life and revelation that come to you directly from the Holy Spirit and I'm not your dealer. And I think sometimes for, for some of us who come from traditions that rightly prize, you know, education and loving God with our whole minds and, you know, looking at, you know, all that scholarship has to offer us, which is so, so much, we sort of feel like, eh, I'm not sure I want to let you loose with the Holy Spirit because, might need to come and sort of believe what I tell you to believe and think the way I tell you to think. And I mean, that's ironic because I think we pride ourselves on being, you know, having greater intellectual freedom 
than some of our some of the stereotypes and caricatures that we have of evangelical or Pentecostal pastors. But I think we are just as controlling. We just you know label the way we control people as whatever professionalism or academic rigor. Um, so I, I think it's all. I mean, it's really interesting. And what, when we talked about this before, the question I asked you, which I think is helpful to articulate is um, like, what did that look like specifically when you gave that invitation at the end of your sermon? Was it you say a line and invite people to say a line back to you? Was it you inviting them into a season of prayer? Like, let's spell it out for people. What does that look like when you want to um, invite people to cross the line, take a taste? What, what do mm-hmm. you as the mm-hmm. pastor say? Sure. And that's a, that's a really great question. Uh, what I did was I ended the sermon and then following the sermon said, hey, if you are feeling a tug at your heart, that's the Holy Spirit. If you're, if you're feeling like I, I'm, I might want to follow Jesus or I think I believe in Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And so this is what this means if you are asking, how do I become a Christian? Well, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and be- believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so what I do, what I've been doing at the end of the sermon is just give a short gospel presentation that says uh, something like, you know, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose from the dead so that you might have eternal life and you don't work for in any way earn God's salvation, you simply receive it as a gift by trusting that Jesus has done everything you need to make, to, to reconcile you to God. And if that's where you are today, then I invite you to pray with me. And um, I don't do the, you know, repeat after me, a kind of sinner's prayer. I, I pray as if I were uh, the person coming to faith and just ask them uh, to, um, use my words as their own. If I were holding someone's hand in that moment, I might ask them to repeat after me. But in in our videos, I've simply been praying and asking people to pray along with me. And um, in that prayer, I affirm or I, I, I ask them to affirm that, that they do believe that Jesus died for their sins and is risen from the dead. And uh, then we say, amen. And we are saying before that um, you want to follow that up with an opportunity to connect. So making it really clear to people that, you know, the Holy Spirit led you to this point and the Holy Spirit will keep leading you. And I want you to know that if you want to, email me, call me, you know, find a way to have a socially distanced coffee so we can, you know, talk just about your particular story and the unique questions you have. Um, you know, I, I want you to know that I would love to spend my time that way. I want you to know that you don't, you know, you don't, we don't believe that we're the only church that could do this work or I'm the only, we don't own Jesus. We, you know, haven't copyrighted him. So this is not in any way something that you need to perceive as necessary. Um, but I also, you know, you don't want people to just think that um, they're all, they're all alone and all on their own. Um, 
and that Jesus, I mean, one of the things that the scripture is really clear about and is that we discover who we are in Jesus in community. We just do. And so what we want to say to people is, you know, we're not perfect and we don't have all the answers, um, but we have room for you at our table and you will be welcome here. Um, And so making that ability to connect really um, also articulating that really clearly. Well, that's great. Yeah. So what's astonishing you? Um, well, not happiness. It's not happiness is not mm. astonishing me this week. Um, mm. I, I am really troubled and I, and I feel like I say some version of this every time that we've been having this, um, making this podcast during the pandemic is that this is, um, such an apocalyptic season, um, apocalypse, not in the sense of the world is coming to an end or the world is going to be destroyed. I don't, most of the time think that that is going to happen. I think as hard as it is to imagine getting back to normal um, after all these weeks, you know, like there will be a new normal and, and it isn't always going to be this way. And I, and I don't believe that we're about to um, cross the line into anarchy. I don't, I don't think. Um, but I do think that this is apocalyptic time in the terms of the meaning of the Greek word apocalypse, which is revealing um, and, and revelation and uncovering, um, and what this, um, disaster and disruption has done is really just, um, torn back the cover, um, and, um, really shown, um, people's values, um, and, um, really, um, exposed some of the open secrets of, um, I mean, in America, things that sort of everybody knows, but that we keep hidden. Um, and the the thing that is, I mean, in so many places, but the thing that I particularly want to highlight today is just our criminal justice dis- system is on full display in all of its egregious injustice and racial bias. And particularly when it comes to the threat of this pandemic, um, in the last two weeks, we have seen two convicted, white, wealthy, powerful men, Michael Cohen and um, Paul Manafort, get their um, sentences, not commuted, but they've been released from prison to home arrest because they had the money and the connections to file a motion that says, you know, it's not right for my life to be in danger um, by my being imprisoned during this outbreak. So I should be released and the judges have agreed. And so both of those men have walked out of prison in the last two weeks. And meanwhile, um, while, while some work has been done by really faithful activists, um, there, there are just tons of poor and black and brown American citizens who sit not just in prisons, but in jails, like unconvicted, because we have a bail system that says, you know, as long as you have money, you can get out, basically, and that, you know, someone is accused of a crime, if they have money, they get to wait for their trial, which could be two, three years at home working um, with their families, and if they don't, you know, can't get capital raised, then they have to 
basically begin serving a sentence before they even get their trial. And, you know, again, that's all, everyone has known that. That has not been a secret. But when you have, you know, front page stories and you see these white men in suits walk out of prison, and then you see stories about how, um, you know, people who are imprisoned right now are not allowed to wear masks, don't have access to sanitizer, don't, I mean, just um, any kind of communal living is an incredibly dangerous place to be during any kind of pandemic. And the fact that, you know, we as a culture say, well, this rich white life is too precious to threaten, you know, to, to risk with, but, but other lives, you know, they can just stay in prison and, you know, hope that they don't get it or hope that they don't die from it. Like, it's just, it's terrible. It's evil. It's evil. We are supposed to have one justice system in this nation and we don't, we have two. And it is um, also just astonishing to see how indifferent the majority of white Christians are to this. And it is, it, it is not just, it should not just be the priority of um, black and brown Christians. And this isn't some like hippy dippy, new age, social justice warrior, liberal, whatever kind of label. I mean, this is biblical. You have you know, the prophet Micah and the prophet Amos and God saying like, I detest dishonest scales and it's in Proverbs and it's in Psalms. And just this idea that when um, people are um, treated unjustly, systemically, intentionally, that is abhorrent to God. And it should be abhorrent to anyone who um, is a follower of God. And the fact that there are so many white evangelicals who either don't care or who write a story to say that anybody who is threatened deserves to be threatened, or you know, if they, you weren't guilty, you wouldn't be in jail, or or basically this isn't happening to me or anyone I care about, therefore I don't care. I mean, it's just an uncovering, not just about the secular justice system, but just about the deep idolatry within the white. American Christian church. And it's, it's grievous. It's just, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. And another, if I can just add a little bit to that uh, good stuff that you've said already is that what's also being revealed that we hate looking at in, in this country is that deep, deep, deep within the American soul is the idea that dark is inherently bad and evil and light and white specifically is inherently good. And so and as you were speaking, um, a, a painting from the Middle Ages came to mind. I remember studying it in humanities class and uh, it's a picture of the devil who is painted black and um, the townspeople and the angels are uh, white with blonde hair. And so when you have that deep within a society soul, then when you see images of white men in suits, you think, oh, well, 
basically they're good guys, right? right. They just might right. maybe got caught. And then when you see black and brown people, you think, mm, no, they're they probably did something to deserve that. And that's just so deep in our society that when that starts to be revealed, that that ugliness, that ugly racism, we really don't want to take a look at that. We we might for a while look at um, the difference in terms of, of economics, of class. But if you dig deeper, that, that's so painful for, for so many that uh, we, we run from that quickly. Or for the person who points it out, we then we accuse the messenger of being yes. racist. Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I have been watching that play out on social media this week that, you know, I have, I have friends who, um, you know, black evangelical friends who will say something about, I mean, anything political. And then their, their white evangelical friends come back with, you know, that's a racist spirit or, you know, you, you are really causing up division and we're supposed to be one and there should be unity in the body and you should repent of that ugly spirit. And it's just a, you know, it's an incredible, it's just incredible to see it so clearly um, displayed that it's not even hidden at all. And the other place I see it that is astonishing to me, astonishing to me to see just the link, the mental gymnastics that whiteness will do um, is, you know, in Africa, um, largely um, coronavirus has been very well contained and um, I see white people pushing all kinds of theories about how, you know, it's because of the climate, it's because it's hotter there, it's because people get more vitamin D, it's because they're outside more, and, um, and same in India. Like, India has done an amazing, amazing, astonishing job of um, protecting its citizens from the spread of coronavirus. And and what people can't see in front of their faces is that there are public health officials in those nations who have taken strategic, intelligent uh, action that has been effective in protecting their nations. And because that kind of excellence is coming from black and brown bodies, you got white people losing their damn minds thinking there's got to be some sort of like secret biological reason that the virus works differently over there because it can't just be that black or brown people have met this challenge with much more intelligence and precision than the white western quote 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 civilized world and it's just astonishing no they handled it well they shut down their borders. They traced and isolated people. It did not spread and began to do community contact. Um, I mean, and obviously Africa is a, a huge content, but uh, I mean, some countries more than others, but like people have had a great public health response in some nations. And the fact that many of those nations are led by black and brown people means people are just, they can't, they just can't compute for white people to just say, no, they did it better. Yeah, during the during this quarantine, I've been watching lots of um, uh, well, they happen to be um, 
travel and a lot of real estate videos uh, from uh, especially Ghana and uh, Nigeria, some from South Africa, but mostly Ghana and Nigeria. And they are produced by these young adults. And I, I watched one a couple of days ago. And uh, this, this guy started his video by saying, if you live in the West and you hear the word Africa, most likely you think of this. And then he cut to like, you know, giraffes and zebras and then some, um, some folks in the Maasai tribe. And then he said, well, you got to realize that a lot of Africa is this. He gives you, uh, you know, the skyline of Lagos, Nigeria and, and uh, Accra, Ghana. And, and the whole video was about um, this new development in uh, Lagos. They're calling it the Dubai of Africa or the Dubai of Nigeria. And I had to admit, I was astonished by the plans and the skyscrapers and what's being built. And, um, and, and then right after that, I watched another video on you know the, 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 the 10 greatest cities, modern cities of Africa. And yes, we do have this uh, in, in the West in general, uh, but particularly white people in the West, uh, just a very low view of, of the continent. And if, if uh, well, it is astonishing that they would do those kind of mental gymnastics for why the coronavirus isn't spreading there. But then here in this country, Who's dying? Black and brown. Correct. Correct. Well, and you know, the other thing that's so interesting about just particularly the American Christian imagination when it comes to the continent of Africa is, you know, we have a lot of Christians who are very connected to um, different African nations and different ministries, but they are always in a, a in particular kinds of places because you know, it doesn't make any sense to spend whatever, $3,000 a person to fly them across the world to go to, uh, you know, a sophisticated, uh, you know, bustle. I mean, like, because we think that is, you know, we think that is the goal. And so we try to go find places that look like the pictures of the Maasai, um, you know, whatever our stereotypical images of, quote, 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 unquote, uncivilized Africa are because we think we have some great truth to offer, which is ridiculous on the face of it anyway. But putting that aside, you know, we want to believe whiteness and America wants to believe that Africa is some, you know, dangerous, uncivilized um, monolith and that we can bring enlightenment and moral superior. I mean, like, it's just all kinds of twisted and grossness but i would say the majority of i would have to bet that the majority of people who travel from america to the continent of africa are probably going to be christians going on mission trips and so the places they're going to show up are going to be predetermined based on the needs not of the communities that they're serving but the needs of the communities that are sending these missionaries and their need to be I mean, whatever, white saviors, <laughs> there needs to be the solution and the answer to other people's prayers. And it's just, 
gross, much in the same way. And I know we've talked about this before, that when we all quote and study the great theologian Augustine and we see pictures of him and dude's white, except yeah. <laughs> that because well, we of... can't go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying like we have reimagined this man as a white man because we can't accept the yes. reality that one of the greatest yes. minds in Christian theology was an African man. Yes. And we yes. literally whitewashed him because we can't accept him as an authority unless he looks like what our image. Oh, it's just gross. I just Well, one of the one of the gifts of this uh time of quarantine has been time to watch churches around the world worship online. And um, like I, I Google um, Presbyterian churches in Nigeria, Presbyterian churches in Ghana, and uh, the Presbyterian church in Lagos, Nigeria, holy cow, they rock and roll. It's great. I love watching them. Um, and I, I would encourage more Christians to do that. I, I talked to uh, someone who is an elder in an African-American Presbyterian church here in Charlotte, and she's having a great time um, watching churches in South America. She says, especially Brazil. So it's just a, a great time to get connected to the broader body of Christ. And just to remember that what it means to be part of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church, has nothing to do with worship culture. It has to do how we share leadership and discern God's will for the congregation through collaboration and deliberation of pastors and elected elders from within the congregation. It's not got anything to do with if you have an organ and you listen to hymns and the boys wear bow ties and the girls wear smocked dresses. That is not what is essential about being Presbyterian, even though that is the images that often get pictured on some of our imaginations. Anyway. Well, let me say one more thing, because uh, we kind of left the subject, but I just want to say one more thing about uh, uh, white evangelicals in this season, because uh, I have a, a, a a piece of advice that I think would be very helpful uh, to any who might be listening or are interested. I think this is a great season to read once again, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail, Oh yeah. because the situation is so similar. Uh, and in that white evangelicals at the time we're saying, we're criticizing him for disturbing the peace, quote unquote. Disturbing the peace. And disturbing the say, unity. He, he, and, he, and he calls them out in a, in a powerfully prophetic way and says, wait, your, your passivity on these issues shows that you are not on the Lord's side here. You're at peace with my suffering. Yeah. Like that's crap. And you're telling me that I have to be at peace with my suffering. And that's, that, that's just not the Lord. I mean, when the slaves cried out in Egypt, they, 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 God, Yahweh's answer wasn't, excuse me, you're disturbing the peace. Just seek unity with your Egyptian overlords. That's not, you know, that is not the message. We don't make peace with injustice. So we don't have to, we should not demonize the perpetrators because 
our enemies are not flesh and blood, they're powers and principalities. So we don't demonize the perpetrators, mm. but we don't make peace with injustice. And, and we certainly don't make peace with the suffering of other people. Like I do think, you know, there's a deep Christian tradition in accepting suffering and leveraging it for the sake of the gospel in prophetic ways, unearned suffering is redemptive, you know, but that's how one chooses to handle one's own suffering, not what you impose on other people. And I said in the last podcast, I was just reading a story, um, an interview, uh, I think it was in the Washington Post where the, the reporter went out and just kind of the reopening is earlier in Georgia. And so was walking around an outdoor, a very wealthy outdoor shopping um, development in a Georgia Atlanta suburb, you know, full of, you know, anthropology stores and Lululemon and, you know, craft gear um, gardens and just, you know, looking at the behaviors of the people and interviewing all of these people who were saying, this is fine. This is safe. I needed this. Life has to get back to normal. And, and one man in particular told the reporter, look, now that I see the demographics of this disease, I'm just not that worried. And I mean, literally saying, now that I see who's dying of this disease, I don't care anymore. Wow. And I mean, that yeah. is a, a terrifying thing to hear. <laughs> you know, that's not good for the democracy. But I mean, as a, I mean, obviously, I don't know what the spiritual background of that person is, but like, you know, I do think that the church in America has been so malformed by bad teaching that there are a lot of believers who could say that and not see it as a betrayal of Jesus, just not, mm. just not understand. Um, and I mean, there's just a deep pathological um, sickness in our churches. Um, so, which makes me more than ever excited to evangelize and say it doesn't have to be either or you know um, that there is a way that we have entrance into the realm of god and we can you know preach the shalom of god that won't be satisfied with false shallow human imitations and we can you know do our small stupid acts of disruption knowing that it's not about saving the world it's about bearing witness to the truth that's um, good as god continues on the work of redeeming all of creation so anyway um where where are we in this <laughs> this redo i don't even know where we are now <laughs> well we were talking about what's astonishing us not very far then. We, this is turning up. Every time we do this, it gets longer and longer. We might have to cut it short, but I know. But, I was going to say we didn't get to the. What are you thinking about? You know. Well, what are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? I'm thinking about worship. I'm thinking about worship, uh, especially as stay-at-home orders are. Wait, is that what you were thinking about last time? That's not what you said on the last podcast. No, I don't think so. Well, no, no. I I did. At, on the last podcast, I talked about um, gathering again. Yes. Yeah. But now, I mean, I'm I'm still thinking about that, right? Because it's just such a relevant issue that we have not figured out yet. Especially since our lad pod podcast, the Presbytery of Charlotte has 
uh, given some guidelines to churches. And one of those guidelines says that, you know, if you're going to gather again, uh, if you're going to have in-person gatherings within the next month or so, not only should you provide masks for everyone, but there should be no congregational singing. And so we're asking, well, can, can you have worship without singing? And, you know, my conclusion is yes. But then you have to ask, well, what, what, what does that kind of service look like? And mm -hmm. one of the things we are, we, our session, our board of elders, one of the things we're asking is what if, what if, well, you know that song, um, what's the name of that song? Heart of Worship. Heart of Worship, yes. We're asking, what if we said to the members of our church family, look, before you come on a Sunday morning, ask God what God wants you to bring to contribute to worship. There's not going to be a printed out order of worship. What you bring is going to be part of the order of worship. Bring a scripture reading, bring a song, bring a testimony, you bring something. And basically, um, uh, we, we had a, a, a virtual retreat last Saturday, and we were asked to consider, just to think about, what, what if we did that for 30 days? What if we did that for a month, that kind of worship experience? Would that cause folks to step up and get engaged and say, hey, you know what, I am, I'm a worshiper, regardless of what happens on the platform. If we have a musician on the platform, if we have congregational singing or not, I am a worshiper. I know how to uh, praise, adore, honor the Lord with my church family without a, a band. Right. And so we're, we haven't um, made a conclusion on that, but we're thinking about that as a possibility for us. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot too. Um, and it's been a really interesting, one of the hardest um, realizations in this whole process is, you know, learning when we started this uh, stay at home, we didn't really understand how much this virus is spread through whatever, through respiratory droplets and how different, um, you know, how different the risk is when people are just standing and talking versus singing. And mm -hmm. as that has become clearer over these past few weeks, it's been, um, it's been a really emotional for me. And I, I mean, this is probably a little too much to, get into on this podcast, but I, um, so way, way back in the day, I went to college on a music scholarship. I was a, um, vocal performance major and, and which, didn't you sing in a restaurant? Didn't you have that I job did. for a while? Yeah. I you sang were in a restaurant like for a while, one of the is, opera singers and what was the name of uh, Maggiano's? I, no, Macaroni Grill. Macaroni Actually, Grill. That's it. Yes. Fun, yes. fun fact. <laughs> Um, I sang for Muhammad Ali and no I did because I'm from Louisville and he was from Louisville and he Sweet. came into the restaurant and I sang for him Sweet. and he signed a menu for my dad and I felt really badly about asking him because his Parkinson's was pretty advanced at the time and wow. it took him a really long time and he was there to eat and in retrospect I feel really 
selfish about doing that. But anyway, but he was, he was lovely and he was not speaking at that moment, but I was talking to his wife and anyway, whatever he was, oh, he was great. Awesome. But, I, I didn't um, know that about you. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, it's the only famous person I've ever met, but it's a good one, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, he, uh, anyway, I was a music major in college and I went to a school that had a conservatory and it was really, um, it was a really hard because I am actually not a very good musician. <laughs> so, but I am stubborn and it was a really intense and competitive environment. And I probably hindsight being 2020 20, should have dropped out because it just really, it's just not my gifting. And really, I didn't care as much. Um, like I, I liked singing more than I liked music. Um, Anyway, whatever. It was really, it was, it was a hard um, journey for me. Um, and and um, it left me feeling really indifferent about, about music. Um, there were some sort of turning points in that um, curriculum, in that degree, you know, certain points where you had to pass certain juries and, and I didn't. And it just, it was really, it was really hard. Um, and I remember, you know, graduating and just feeling like I was going to feel like a failure whenever, um, like whenever I heard music, especially whenever I heard the kind of classical opera music that I had been trained in, that I had failed at. <laughs> and, um, and so, and, you know, then I, um, you know, was called to ministry and was in seminary and that was just a, a wonderful experience for me to care about something and to be good at it. And anyway, it's all great, but it, it's been interesting. I just have been really indifferent to music ever since until we went through this big um, transformation process at the Grove when um, part of what changed is the music changed from being kind of classic um, traditional hymnody, which is very much connected to the kind of orchestral and operatic music that I was trained in as an undergraduate to contemporary Christian music, which is just really different um, in every way, different in range and in how you sing and the, I mean, language used, it's just very different. And I like almost everyone who was part of worship in one way and then led by God to learn to worship in a new way initially was just very resistant. I like traditional worship. I had been taught to really look down on contemporary worship that, you know, it's simplistic and it's theologically vacuous and it's just, you know, a waste of time and it's egotistical and um, whatever. And then you, you go into the, um, this new thing, trying to have an open heart. And, and what I discovered was just how wonderful it is for me, just this new, um, this new whole new world of ways to praise God and, and songs to sing and ways to sing them. And um, worship has just become, I've always loved worship, but it's just become so much richer and deeper. And I love singing so much. And I don't sing on the stage at my church at all. That's not what I do. And what I have realized is, you know, coming up when I, when my identity was being a singer, what I wanted to do, what I loved was singing on the stage. And now that I have been gifted with this whole new way of worshiping and praising God, now what I love is singing. I don't, I don't need to be heard or seen. I just love being part of those songs and singing in them. And so 
you know, on the one hand, it's been so sad to think about how, what worship would be like without just the deep joy that I get of being part of those songs. On another hand, it has been this revelation that there has been a level of healing and restoration in my life that I wasn't even aware of that was happening to think that, you know, I graduated from college thinking for the rest of my life, anytime anybody sings, I'm going to feel sad <laughs> to now realizing, you know, this just gives me deep joy and meaning and connection. And also, you know, it's just been interesting because like you, I've been thinking like, well, can you worship without singing? Well, of, of course you can. And so I just want to pay attention to um, all of the feelings I have around missing that for a season and wonder if as much as I know that singing and together is a gift from God and it honors God, I mean, even good things can separate us from God if we hold them wrong or, or our love for them is disordered. And so I'm like you, I, I'm, I'm not in a rush to get back to in-person worship. First of all, just epidemiologically, like, because I want to make sure that, that we are being safe and faithful and good shepherds. But second of all, because I feel like we've got to figure out a whole new way to worship and that's just going to take a minute but also, I just have this sense that for a season, it will be good for us. Like maybe good like medicine that tastes bad as it's going down, but, you know, ultimately is, is for our good and heals us in ways that we weren't expecting. Um, so, I, but I mean, I do grieve um, the, the reality that when we come back together in in-person worship, this part of worship that ministers to me so deeply, this team of people who lead worship from the platform won't be able to do that in the same way. That's just a real loss to me. And I am so grateful um, that we've been able to do it for so long. And I'm so grateful to the leadership in my congregation, um, just how deeply and personally blessed I've been all these years um, and just realizing facing the absence of that has made me realize how deeply healing and formative it has been. And so it's just been a really interesting um, flood of emotions as we think about, okay, it's now I don't think it's time to come back. Um, but I think it's time to begin to imagine what coming back will look like. So me too. That's what I'm thinking about too. Yeah. And we've decided that we are not going back until we decide what that's going to look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we, we have not, we have some meetings next week. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I think that my sense is we're going to stay worshiping um, apart for a few more weeks um, and that we have some interesting ways to explore how we can be more interactive with one another online while we're apart. Um, but I do think 
you know, there's going to be a season where we are, where it's in person, but different. And so I need some time to think and dream with some people about what that can look like. Um, I, I, I don't sense that it would be faithful just to wait apart until we can come back together. Like we never left. Cause I just think it's going to be a long time. Um, well, I don't think we're going to be able to pick up where we left off when we come back together. And it sounds like you definitely don't want to do that. So no, yeah. we are seeing this season as God inviting us into something new permanently mm-hmm. that, that this was in a way teed up for us. I mean, not that God sent the virus so that we could have an opportunity to change worship, but that, uh, you know, God makes all things work together for good. So yeah. that in this horrible situation, part of the good for us, for our congregation, is that this is an opportunity um, that, that God is inviting us to shift our, our worship uh, away from uh, folks being consumers and spectators in, into um, more active worshipers. And uh, yeah. I'm, I'm super excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that as we get, um, farther or deeper, whatever word you want to use in our journeys, we recognize that there are just points in our, um, in our following where we're invited to take a step of faith that is just scary because it's so radically new. And, you know, I think that um, when I was growing up, people would say, you know, use the language of faith when they were very certain, like, well, my faith tells me X or I'm doing this by faith. And and by that they meant, or I assume they meant they knew exactly what to do and they knew exactly what was going to happen. And, and that was really unhelpful for me because I think the times that we're walking by faith are the times when we feel least certain and um, we, we feel most vulnerable that like, gosh, I'm not sure that I'm doing this right. Um, and, and I really might be doing this wrong. And I'm just discerning and trusting that God is not going to let me walk off a cliff when what I'm trying to do is be really faithful. But I can't lean on my own understanding because I'm just, you know, way out over my skis. And um, that that is what it means to walk by faith. And I think we sort of have gotten the expectation that walking by faith means you're really, really certain, or you have, you know, a magic crystal ball that tells you what's going to happen next Tuesday. And so you know what stocks to sell on Friday. And that is insider trading, not discipleship. <laughs> and apparently that's legal now, but not faithful. Boy. So, anyway, now I've walked down the rabbit hole. Um, so what I, are you preaching? Well, I am preaching the last parable in this parable series, and I'm going to preach, um, one of the banquet parables from Luke 14 because I just didn't have the heart to preach it from Matthew because it's, it's super violent in Matthew. So I feel like we we need the, we need the gentler version. So we're going to do it in Luke um, chapter 14. Um, But it's where, you know, the, the owner throws this beautiful party and um, invites people and then, comes to get them when the time has come and they give all these excuses as to why they're not going to come. And the thing that I think is really important is they're not bad reasons. I mean, they, they, are, they don't say I'm not coming because I'm going to go have an affair. Or, I'm sorry. I've got to like kill someone. And I, you know, 
they're not sinning. Um, what they're doing is being responsible um, to new animals they've bought and they're being successful because they've just gotten a new property and they're putting their families first by staying home with their new wife. And these are all things that our culture really encourages and expects and celebrates us, um, celebrates people when they do them. And Jesus is warning us against making those choices. And I think sometimes, you know, we buy the lie that fidelity to Jesus and being a good American look like the same thing practically all the time. And mm. they, they just don't. There are times when the values of our culture are, are really out of line with the values of the kingdom. Not all, I mean, not always. Um, and, and we just have to be discerning enough to know um, that what can look like success in our culture looks like um, destruction in the kingdom. Um, so anyway, that is what I'm doing. And then it's been interesting to have this conversation about evangelism with you because when those folks won't come, the response is, you know, well then let's fill up the table with um, yeah. the poor and the lame and the yeah. blind and the indigent and there's still room. So go out, go out into the roads and compel people to come, compel people to come to this table. And I really love this idea that what is happening here is not like a ministry project to house the homeless or like, you know, do a, a bridges out of poverty ministry. I mean, it is not about fixing people. It's about befriending and sharing hospitality with them, like being in relationship with people. And that's a really interesting thing. Cause I think, I, I mean, like our particular tradition has a heart for justice, which is good, but often that looks like, um, supporting a program instead of being in relationship with people. Um, so I'm, yeah, I mean, that'll preach. Jesus. That will preach. Jesus, Jesus has some good things to say. So, yes. I'll just try to stay out of the way. What about you? Well, in the podcast that we lost earlier today due to, thunderstorm and power outage I was saying that um, I don't know what I'm preaching on Sunday and it's Friday and I was feeling pretty down and um, not just down but a little embarrassed about that and you very graciously said hey we're in the middle of a great disruption. And so it might be good for people that we minister to and love and walk with to hear us struggling with, you know, the things that we do week in and week out. Um, normally, you know, we have a schedule and a pattern and a way that we do it. And in this, in this time of disruption, there are days, there are weeks when we, um, are out of our routine in a major way and um, and yeah, still I mean, we press on. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's really important to say two opposite things right now. One is that I trust that God is in this season with us and holding us and ministering to us and um, filling us and using this in ways that we can't understand or imagine um, or, or even sense. Um, and 
I am not living my best life right now. Like I am just <laughs> not. Um, and I very much feel like I should be. I mean, for, oh. for a long time, I've been thought like, gosh, if I just had more time and less meetings and less, like, ah, oh, the things I would do, the places I would the go. The places I and would go. The reality is, no, I am not sleeping more. I am not eating better. I am not exercising more. I am not reading more. I am not writing more. I am not <laughs> parenting better. I am not oh. a better wife. Like, this is really hard. Yeah. And I mean, it's hard even if you are like, I'm not even that disrupted in my life. Like I have a safe place to live and we both still have our jobs and, you know, our kids are able to, you know, have access to the technology, but it's just hard and scary. And I, I think it's just really important to be transparent with people about saying, you know, we were saying before that, like, I feel like it, it, if there has ever been a season in my life when I have wanted to serve the church better, I don't know what it is. Like mm. for such a time as this, do you become yeah. a pastor? Do you want to have a community that can be hope and strength and solace and inspiration and love when the world is falling apart around us? Like this feels like, you know, the, this is it. And, and I, I was saying before, like, I feel like I'm, like I'm in the Olympic boxing championship round and I've got one hand tied behind my back. Like I just am not oh, able to yeah. do a lot of the things that were part of my, you know, process and tools that I was able to use. And that's just really hard on my ego. And also, you know, this isn't about us being good. It's about God being good. And so how do you sort of not like let that be the excuse that you use to sit in bed and eat bonbons, but also just accept that like, you know, this is just the best that I can do right now. It's not very impressive. It's just not very impressive. Um, but that my hope, our hope lies in the fact that what is in us isn't of us. And so I am very hindered and hampered by everything that is happening right now. But I believe that God is not. Um, and that even when I am not aware, God is faithful and sufficient and up to something. So I'm trying to cling to that and eat less chocolate and watch less <laughs> crappy television. And Survivor's over, so now we're not talking about this on the podcast. We just, this is why we don't get to take a walk. And so we have all these things that we talk about when we're not recording, just like things that we're interested in. And we have these Survivor. theological conversations. about. I told you that one of my friends was like, I saw that one of your podcasts was titled Survivor. And I just didn't even listen to that one because <laughs> fine. <laughs> anyway, we're clearly done here. Um, and if this one gets lost, that's just the way it is. We're, we're giving up. But um we are grateful that you listened, and um, I highly recommend that you um, watch some of the messages that Yolando is putting together. They are on YouTube. They are now on Facebook because Yolando has joined the dumpster fire that we call Facebook, and so you can <laughs> watch and link to them on Facebook as well. And he's been behind, but he's all caught up. You posted like nine weeks of sermons, so it's great. 
Well, I kept getting can... notices from Facebook. Um, you have uh, 60 friend requests. <laughs> like, oh, uh, yeah. I think I need to. Um, um, yeah, it took you a long time. time to approve me as your friend, by the way, like weeks. Well, I, anyway. <laughs> I formed a page and then I just kind of left it. Anyway, whatever. All right, sorry. Anyway, if you want to learn more about Derrida Presbyterian Church, you need to Google Derrida Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it will pop you over to their website if you want to be part of this wild reformation journey that they're on over there um and if you want to learn more about the grove um you can go to thegrovecharlotte.org um you can subscribe to our newsletter which is full of really good stuff and if you want to listen to any of the messages from the grove you can go to itunes and find the grove church podcast um look for the tree with the um like earphones it's pretty cute it's a good graphic and um you can hear um, what we've been wrestling with over there anyway thank you all for listening and we um we'll be back next week 